Thank you so much for coming today. Let's do this. I want to talk about a couple of um, what do I want to talk about? A couple of um, housekeeping notes. Number one, let's talk about the Shepherds Conference, shall we? Um, we every year try. The Shepherds Conference is put on by Grace Community Church in um, the Los Angeles area, where John MacArthur is at, and Master Seminary, and. Um, we try to go every year to the conference, and we like to invite as many of the guys in Build and H3 or guys who have already done Build and or H3 to go, and we would love, um, the invitation is out to you guys to go. Um, there's a little bit of, a, of, of an expense in it. It's not cheap, um, but... Uh, we would love to have you guys think about it, and we'd love to have you guys talk with us if you think um, finances might be um, an obstacle that would keep you from going. We, we wouldn't want that, um, and maybe we can work out something, um, kind of uh, payment plan with a balloon thing that happens in a few weeks or something. Just kidding. We don't do that. <laughs> but... Uh, it would be a way that we could make some money, but um, not a very good way for us to make some money. Um, so anyway, here's what you can do. You can go to, uh, if you want to write down the website, it's shepherdsconference.org. Um, all one word, shepherdsconference.org. Don't put apostrophe in there, just shepherdsconference.org. And you would register yourself. The cost for the uh, conference itself is $300. That'll take care of your breakfast and your lunch for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, it will um, give you, uh, you know, what you need for the, the conference. You will walk away with a uh, small little red wagon load of books that they give back to you. Not a, they give to you in a bag, but I mean, you take home a lot, um, so you get a lot back, and you'll probably also get like a fifty-dollar gift card or something like that from them to spend in the bookstore um, to get more um, propaganda to bring home. <laughs> and uh, it is, uh, so it's well, I think it's well worth the money and, and what you're going to hear. Um, the guys who are speaking in the conference is of course John MacArthur, um, Al Muller's coming back. Um, you guys can help me. Uh, Rick Holland speaking. Phil Johnson is speaking. Steve Lawson is speaking. And um, the guy in Dallas. Tom Pennington. I think those are the guys. Um, and it's just top notch. And there's all kinds of breakout sessions to be able to go to um, in between those main sessions where those guys are preaching. Um, uh, There'll be probably 3,000 other church leaders and type like that there. Um, so what you would do is you would go on and you would register yourself. And once you have done that, then what you would need to do is email Cassidy um, in the office. And, and just so you know, Cassidy is Zach Can's wife. They just got married <laughs> So you would email his wife in the office, <laughs> and his wife runs the church and um, keeps it under control. And she then will talk to you about two things, housing and or transportation. Um, 
Usually we try to carpool out as many of us as possible. Uh, some guys, because of their schedule, need to fly. And so they do that. And Southwest has some pretty you know, reasonable deals into Burbank. And the way that the flights arrive, and depending on when you come, we can easily pick you up at the airport in Burbank. It's 15 minutes from the church. Uh, so if you needed to fly in, you wouldn't need to get a rental car. We'd be able to pick you up. We usually have enough vehicles that are out there. Um, we haven't decided yet. The elders haven't even talked about when we're going to be going out. Um, we usually go out either um, very early Wednesday morning at the latest, like get up and leave by 5, because we can drive in there an hour behind us, so we actually it helps us a little bit. We arrive about 10 o'clock, and that's when registration and everything begins. Um, that makes Wednesday a very long day, but it saves you the money of not having to stay there Tuesday night. Um, some of us might go out Tuesday afternoon, later in the afternoon after work, and, and just get in later and, and, and stay uh, in, a hotel, in the hotel there. We have a block of rooms in a hotel in North Hollywood, which is like five minutes from the church. Um, and then Cass can talk to you about what it costs for you to stay in the hotel because there's all kinds of different <laughs> options. Or if you have your own arrangements, if you have friends or family out that way and you want to stay with them, you can certainly do that and I would encourage you to do that. That would be beneficial for you to do that. Um, don't forget to grab all the handouts by the door there. Um, and so uh, Cass can let you know how much it'll cost. Um, by the way, she's Zach's wife. She runs the church. Oh yeah, Zach, can you just call me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that not she should do before I was. See, I married her to help me with that. You're a wise man. Um, because it depends on we can get four guys to a room uh, if you want. Uh, that's you have to be really like close to these guys, you will be close to these guys, and you have to be very secure in your manhood uh, to do such. Uh, that will save you more money. Uh, if you need your own room all by yourself, that will cost you more, of course, and so we can work that out with you, and it depends on when you're coming out. Some guys won't be able to come out until later in the day on Wednesday because they just can't take off on work or whatever, and um, so we, uh, you know, work all of that out. Cassidy has the kind of mind to be able to coordinate everybody and, and work it all out, okay? Um, and so then it's going to cost you 300 for the conference and then plus whatever it is for room and board for you. Uh, you might need a little bit of money to uh, buy, you know, some uh, food on the way out and the way back and maybe a meal once you're there. A lot of times we try to eat together as, as a group or maybe two large groups depending on, on how many of us there are. And... Um, uh, so we, we, we try to just do that. Um, you might want to bring a little bit of money to help out pay for some gas uh, for whoever's driving. If you're willing to drive and you have a larger vehicle or even if you just got you know your car and you want to help some uh, take some other people along, let us know that. You can just let Cassidy know that. Okay? Um, and it, guys, seriously though, if, if, you, if you think uh, you know, money would be a, a deal killer for you, just, just talk to either Tom or me or Scott and then we'll address it um, together. And um, you know, if you're able to do you know, half, if you, can, if you can pay for the conference but you're not sure about the hotel or you can pay for your hotel but you're not sure about the conference, let us know. 
Um, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, before, and by the way, it's March 9th through the 13th. Those are the dates. That's a Wednesday, all day, all day Thursday, all day Friday. They say the conference goes through Saturday and Sunday, but I very seldom do any of us stay through the weekend. We usually come home on Saturday morning. Some guys drive home Friday after the last session. They just drive straight through to get home. Um, it just kind of depends. Okay? Um, but we don't need to have the money, all of it, right up by March 9th. If you were able to, to pay for all of it, but you could pay half of it now and half of it the last half in six months, we'll work with you. Um, if you just need some scholarship help, we can do that as well. Okay? So please talk to us. But it's time to start thinking about that, and it's, uh, I'm going to keep that in front of you over the next couple of weeks. Any questions or comments, any of the other guys? Oh, by the way, the most important thing that comes out of it from our mind, in my mind, is not that you uh, necessarily get all the wonderful everything you get. You do get that. But the chance to be together and to uh, just uh, experience all of that at the conference together builds unity, and it builds unity in our minds around the right kinds of things, the Word of God, um, the importance of, of the local church, uh, you know, and, and we're all thinking that we want to be men of God. Um, so just want to encourage you to, to uh, really consider it, okay? Any, Tom? They're not doing anything on Saturday again this year, correct? That is correct. That is sightseeing for you if you want to stay. Yeah. If you want to like just tour yeah, through the Van Nuys neighborhood, you're. <laughs> yeah. Any questions or any comments on that, guys? How many of you have gone to Shepherd's Conference before? Anybody here? Very good. We need several more of you to go if you're able to. We would love to go with you and hang out. It's lots of fun. All right. The other um, housekeeping issue. Okay. So again. You go to the website, you register yourself, and then you email Cassidy and let her know you're going. Okay? Um, all right, so then the next thing is, if, if you look at your calendar, we have a build scheduled for February 19th. February 19th. And what I am wondering is if it is at all possible for us to move that back one week to the first Saturday in March, which would be March 5th. The reason for that is the elders are trying to um, get a little um, elder retreat in over that weekend, uh, especially before Jacob and his wife Kiki and Eliana need to go to Ohio for three months to finish out his uh, last bit of rotation on um, his anesthesiology stuff he's doing. So we're trying to do it before he goes. So February 19th, um, I would like to propose that we move that to the next Saturday, which is Saturday, March 5th. If you'll notice, there's only one in March, and that's because we do that all the time because we always there's always one of the weeks that we we basically call Shepherd's Conference one of them, um, even though not all of you go. But um, that would be the Saturday before. Um, Shepherd's Conference. So March 5th, if you guys can make that note, and hopefully we'll be able to do that, and it won't be a deal killer, and we won't have like 10 guys here. Uh, but if, if it is a deal, if it's for you is impossible, would you just email me and let me know, or come up and tell me, 
because um, if I do get from you that there's like a dozen of you that can't come to the, on that Saturday, then we'll have to, we may figure something else out. Okay? So please let me know if that's a, a main issue for you. All right. How about take your notebooks and turn them over? And let's look at the disciplines, again, that we try to keep our mind and our hearts near. Um, these are spiritual leadership, biblical disciplines. Uh, these, these kind of are uh, the way that the, el- what the elders think about spiritual leadership in the church and in the home. These are the ways that we're trying to express what we think spiritual leadership is. Hopefully we've had the Bible inform our minds on it. So we're not just pulling ideas out of culture or out of the air. But these ideas are, are being, have been implanted in our hearts and in our minds by Scripture. And so hopefully they're biblical disciplines. And I think we've been able to show that so far. Um, but uh, this is what we want to be thinking of. Discipline number one, a, a spiritual leader in the church has got to be a man who shepherds his heart. And what we mean by that is he shepherds his heart to the word of God in order to meet with the God of the word. Um, it is too easy to come to the word. I know you guys are going to, I say this every time, and I'm not saying it because I, I don't think I haven't told you. I'm saying it because you need to hear it all the time. I need to hear this all the time. You should never stop telling yourself this. It is possible to come to the word of God and not meet with God. It is possible. Um, I, I have done it far more than I've ever wished I, I, I had. And I will continue to do it, I'm sure, at times when I wish I wouldn't. And you do it. It's what we are. Our sin nature would love to do this. I mean, think about it as, as just as a, as a strategy of the devil, a scheme of the devil. He doesn't have to get you to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to get you to deny inspiration. He doesn't have to get you to deny orthodox doctrines. All he has to do is make you feel content that your Bible's open, but you're not meeting with God. But you're content. That right there is a hollow man. Content in his Christianity, content in his leadership, content in his home, but he's not meeting with God. That's a pretty significant ploy. And you have to be aware of that. And you must fight against that. And you don't do it. I'm sorry, being saved does not automatically just make that happen reflexively. You don't even have to think about it. No, it is a discipline. You have to discipline yourself to do it, to be aware of it, to think about it, to act on it, to prevent it, to encourage it, um, to prevent you know, coming to the word in the wrong way. So shepherd your hearts, guys. Um, Drag your heart before the Word of God so that it can see God in the Word. You do that, then you the first place of impact needs to be your home. Um, that you would now shepherd the lives and the souls that are in your home. There should be a, some kind of a, a gospel aroma, a Word of God aroma that comes off of you where you live because that's the kind of man you are. It's just who you are. You, you meet with God in His Word. And you live someplace, and people who live with you, they see it, they sense it, they know it, they experience it, because they, they get close to you. you. You need to impact the people that you live with first in this. Uh, for many of you, obviously, that's a wife, that's some kids, but for a good number of you, it's, it's uh, roommates and parents. 
you need to be, especially if you're still living at home, you need to be a, a young man of God that your mom and dad go, you know, that boy, he, he meets with God. And I see it, and I, I hear it in the way he talks to me. I hear it in the, I see it in the way he responds to his siblings who drive him crazy. That needs to be evident in you. Um, and it's a journey you're on. You're not perfect at it, and neither is your dad, neither is your mom. But it's a journey that you're on. Um, but you don't play leapfrog over your house. You young guys, especially, who are still at home, don't get suckered into the thinking that everybody inside your house is stupid and everybody outside your house is cool. That is a horrible pattern that will begin early. And it will affect you when you're in your 20s. Anybody in their 20s want to attest to the fact that how easy it is to want to keep looking outside your house that you live in even now? I said 20s. Right. <laughs> I was going to go further, but I, yeah, I, 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 I might just drop it. I just drop it. <laughs> yeah. So you don't want to play leapfrog over your household. The third discipline. Then you, now you're ready to shepherd people in, in ministry and care for people in ministry. A, a man who is shepherding his heart, a man who is taking care of people in his home uh, with the gospel as he just lives and seeks uh, the God of the Word. It is somebody that you want stepping into the lives of others in the church. That's the kind of man a church is looking for, to lead others, care for others. That's the kind of man that needs to be stepping even outside of the church into a lost world with the gospel uh, to bring people to Christ. Um, you need to be that kind of man. It is not rigidly sequential that you... Shepherd your heart, shepherd your heart, shepherd your heart. Okay, then you graduate from that because you finally got it. Now you can move to your house and you work on your house, you work on your house, and then you graduate with that degree and then you move. It's not like that. You never graduate from these, but they are sequential. There's a, there's a sense of priority. If you play leapfrog over your heart but go to and care about the people in your home, the kind of care they're going to get is not very good care because you played leapfrog over your heart. If you play leapfrog over your heart, your home, and just try to minister to people in the church, well, that impacts the quality of the ministry that people get. You can't do that. You have to walk through it and, and think, if I'm going to get to discipline three, I get to it through disciplines one and two. Okay? Discipline four, we're going to start today, which is the qualifications. We want to point the men of this church to... Uh, the biblical qualifications for deacon in particular in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, and but also qualifications for elder. Uh, there's not a whole lot of difference, actually, between the two lists, except for a little bit of abilities. Um, uh, different abilities are, are, are called for specifically for elders, primarily teaching. Um, so, But you'll see today that um, the first deacons, I think, or prototype deacons, were, were pretty solid guys with the Word of God. Um, some of them even gave their lives for it. Um, so we're going to point you to the qualifications of what deacons are. Um, and all of those qualifications fall into one of three categories. Uh, they're either heart issues about the kind of character you have. They are home issues. Do you manage your own household well? Are you a one-woman man? Or they are ministry issues. How do you just deal with people, controversy, um, opposition? Uh, how do, you, how do, do people just easily frustrate you? Um, you know, those, that's where all the qualifications fall in. Discipline five is the hermeneutic. We will be jumping into that. If you look at, back at your calendar, the last three of um, 
the year April and the two in May are all on just the hermeneutic. What we mean by that, hermeneutics is uh, uh, the rules for interpreting the Bible. There's a set of rules that we try to operate by when we interpret the Bible. And what we want to do is, is you're at Grace Bible Church. Um, you're putting your lives under the, the leadership of, of this church. And so we want you to understand what the rules are, we think, for interpreting the Bible. Uh, not everybody else out there will agree with us. Um, and we're not saying we, we think we're right. We hope we're right. We wouldn't do it if we thought we were wrong. This is the way that we want to try to interpret the Bible. And we want you to be in line with us on that. And you can measure for yourself if it makes sense, if it's wise, if it's good. We want to expose that to you so you can begin to go, oh, that's why there's there's that kind of preaching in the work in the church. That's why there's such an emphasis with on the word of God whenever we're together. You need to see that. You need to be hopefully united with us on that. We want you to be exposed to that. Age three, which is the next layer of leadership development in this church that happens for guys who successfully finish build, really digs deeply into the hermeneutic and expands on it and builds on it much more. And Smet does that. Um, and they're meeting right now in his house. They meet every Saturday morning. That's every week. Um, and so there's lots more going on there. Last discipline, um, discipline six, is the, the vision and the purpose of um, Grace Bible Church. You're not at any church. You're at this church. And what this church sets in front of its eyes in terms of uh, where it's going, what it's setting up as its goal, what it aims for, and its gospel <coughs> purpose in Jesus Christ you, if you're going to be a spiritual leader in this church, you need to know where this church is going and what its purpose is so that you can encourage others to become a part of it. Okay? Those are the whole reason why we are here. And we are counting on... I, I, had, a great, I had a great meeting um, earlier this week with a guy, and, and uh, we were just talking about Build and H3 and, and even the Institute and, and that we're, we're trying to... That we have in place, and at one point I, I said to him, "You know, we're counting on, we're 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 expecting God to raise up biblically qualified men because He loves to, because He loves His church, and and so build is not build is, is nothing but a tool that we would hope that God would be pleased to use to do some of that work in a man." And H3, we hope, is something of what God might want to use in part to accomplish that in, in a man. Um, we know that God qualifies men to be elders and shepherds and, and pastors of, of churches. But we, it doesn't happen just in a vacuum. It doesn't happen all on its own automatically. We want to participate with God. We want to set the things before the men of the church that we hope the Spirit of God would love to use. So that they might become the men of God that the Spirit desires them to be, and we hope this is it. And we're always open for you know something that can. We hope this is working to that end, and we're always open to your uh, encouragements, your ideas of how to make it better. Um, so please help us, and just thank you for participating in it. We have high expectations for the men of this church. We expect that God will either be an avalanche of elders and deacons.
what do you mean by opposition? Expand on that a little bit more. Um, just interpretation of <coughs> different sides of faith, different things. You mean? I mean there's opposition all the time. Opposition uh, opposing ideas of what spiritual leadership is and how to handle the word. Uh, I was thinking more of just, just telling thought, thought interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, Tom can, Tom Angstead can speak to this, and Scott as well. Um, I'm sure from their own experience, you know, how often are you, how often is your shepherding ministry, guys, uh, a matter of correcting wrong thinking, uh, encouraging right thinking, um, bad thinking and false doctrine are, are everywhere, and, uh, Incomplete views of good things are, are everywhere, which, if left to themselves, become even worse things. And, and you, you constantly have to be facing that. That's why you have those qualifications that, it, that an elder must be able to refute with sound doctrine. Uh, and I think the only reason he would give a qualification like that is because there's unsound doctrine out there. <laughs> and um, that's his whole point in Titus. Uh, chapter one. Got Tom Scott? Any ideas? Yeah, it happens more often than you think. And I found myself doing that yesterday. The number of times that you uh, find yourself in a shepherding situation where where you need to correct unbiblical thinking is surprising. Um, how about Tom? Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I uh, if I understand Tom's question correctly. Uh, the matter of first importance that we have to truly understand biblically is the gospel. But there are areas where we need to be humble. And I'll give you two that came to mind as Tom was saying this. Uh, there are two men from two churches that are well respected. You have John MacArthur and you have John Piper. With an absolute but a very different view on abortion and marriage. I am not going to jump in and say, our church holds the correct doctrine and you don't. I wouldn't say that to Piper and I wouldn't say it to Piper, so you walk humbly with how they interpret scripture. Uh, churches and how they do deacons. Uh, we know how we do the great Bible church and we are convinced from scripture why we do it this way, but Grace Community, you know, Carver Church does it a little bit different than we, we do. And I'm not going to say, Johnny, you got it wrong. <laughs> but I would say this a church must have deacons. Yeah. It's a biblical office in the church. Yeah. But if, if that's the type of doctrinal issue, man, I just, because I'm an arrogant person to begin with, I desire to walk humbly that. There might be things of how we do church, every Bible church that other churches don't do, and I, I would want to be sensitive to that. Yeah. But we do it because we're convinced of it. Right. But the matter of first importance, the gospel, is there's only two things in all of scripture that God's word tells us is his power, and it's the gospel, and it's the Son of Jesus Christ. And if we mess that up, there needs to be opposition about the gospel. But to, to how we do church, man, I, I just assume, listen, and be humble because that's really good. 
Tom Levins, are we scratching in where your question itched? Yeah, I, I just <laughs> question my attitude because I kind of I love all this. And you know what? Well, and that's the first place to be suspect is of our own attitude, not of other people's doctrine. <coughs> you know, one other thought to your comment, Tom, is uh, it took me numerous years, and I still am trying to figure this out. I'm not the fourth person in the Trinity. And therefore, if uh, it's not about me in the presentation, if I'm true to it. It's not my intelligence or their intelligence, but the word of God. Yeah. yeah. The passage that came to my mind, Tom, is um, 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But that doesn't mean there's not opposition. But he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So there's going to be opposition whether or not we're quarrelsome or not is, is, is the issue with it, or whether or not we're gentle in how we do it, and patient when we're wronged. Um, so there's a, that's, that's a helpful passage for us. And I'll tell you how, this is why I love Grace Bible Church, and why I love the people of Grace Bible Church. When we first did membership, and, and we, we figured it out um, and put it all together, what was that, six, five years ago? Um, we, we called, um, we, we have a list of uh, biblical convictions that we have, and we hand them out and we introduce people to them at like our discovery dinners so that they understand what are some of the other uh, kind of the key doctrinal convictions that we have um, so that you can know about them sooner than later so you know what this church is really all about. Well, we, they weren't called convictions at first. They were called distinctions, biblical distinctives. And... Um, I had somebody after teaching the first class, which was like everybody, we had 100 people in the class because we hadn't had formal membership at, at a point, and, but everybody was in it. After I got done, a dear brother in the church came up to me and said, he goes, can I, can I ask you a question? Why do you call them dis- distinctions? I said, well, because they, they, oh. And he goes, maybe, it, he goes, a word that came to my mind was conviction. You know, they, we might be different than other churches. We will be different than other churches. Every other, other churches are not, you know, not every church is a cookie cutter. We may be different, and we may be different because of our convictions, but um, it, just, it, it, it appears to me to be more humble to call them convictions than this is what makes us different than everybody else. Other churches don't have these things. This is what makes us distinct. And we just... Uh, it, I, I have so appreciated that from somebody in our church, and we immediately changed into convictions. Um, so we just have that kind of sweet bunch of people here that I, I appreciate greatly. So, all right, well, let's uh, turn the corner and let's do. Let's jump into Acts chapter six. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts six. Acts chapter six. We're going to look at the first seven verses together. 
And as usual, get up and down, make yourself at home. Okay, Acts chapter 6. And before we go any further, let's do what we must do, and that is pray. Okay? you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this opportunity before us that you have given to us to be together as men. Uh, men who love you and know you. And we pray, God, that you would uh, meet with us, that you would draw near to us. We want to um, bring this meeting up into your throne room, into your presence. We want to bring you into this library. We don't want to fellowship together. We don't want to fellowship around your word apart from you. And so we pray, God, that you would meet with us, that you would reveal your son Jesus to us, that you would reveal to us, even this morning, that what the, the mission of the church in the gospel and the connection that leadership, like deacons and, and even elders, have with that and disciples in general. So God, please uh, help us to see, uh, not miss anything that you would want us to see this morning. And so, God, we commit ourselves to you, and we humble ourselves, and we sit under your word. We want your word to speak over us. We do not want to put your word below us and speak over it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start with a, an illustration. It may make no sense to you. Uh, it did something somewhat to me earlier. We'll find out if it still makes sense. Um, imagine this. Imagine, you. let's say you have a task in front of you. To, your job is you have to feed like a thousand men. And you want to know how to do that well. Let's say I, I brought you into a room and I had a, a, a video ready to go. I turned the TV on and I, and I started to play that video. And what you saw in that video was a well-organized kitchen. Huge industrial fully stocked, well-supplied kitchen, well-staffed kitchen, and they were serving thousands of men. Thousands of men. And they were doing it efficiently. It was productive. It was, it was Everything about it was just smooth. I'm sure that that would be very helpful to you to see that, to have just kind of parachuted you in to that video, wherever I, I, that section of the video to show it to you. But what if I said, did it a different way? I didn't do it exactly that way. What if I brought you in and I said, you know what, um, I'm, I want to play this video from the beginning because actually the kitchen part isn't, it's, it's not a how to feed a thousand men video. It, it's actually, it's a lot more than that. Um, let, me, let me take it back to the beginning. And if I took you back to the beginning of that video, um, it actually begins in a war room. And there are generals who are meeting together, they're planning and they're strategizing together. They're planning an invasion. And the invasion is going to come by land, and it's going to come by sea, and it's going to come by air. And then the video moves to a massive carrier moving through the ocean, just chugging through the ocean on the way to the battlefield. And then the video goes into a well-organized kitchen. 
well-supplied kitchen, a well-staffed kitchen, and they are serving thousands of men efficiently, effectively. And the video ends with the ship at its destination, missiles launching off of it, aircraft taking off of it, flying towards battle. That's a whole nother deal, isn't it? Why? Because feeding thousands of men is not the main thing. But you see how important it is to feed thousands of men, don't you? And you see how feeding thousands of men is connected vitally to a much bigger thing going on. Does that make sense? The danger, I fear, in us even tackling a subject like what are deacons is, oh, we'll focus on deacons, all right. And we'll talk about it, and probably to you would be like, I can't believe we're actually going to have a lesson on deacons. I can't remember when the last time I thought about deacons was. And and my fear is that we would do that, that we would just kind of micro-focus in on deacons, and we would miss the big thing going on. Thankfully, God has given to us in Acts 6, um, and I think Acts 6, in the, especially as it sits in the context of Acts as a book overall, shows us the overall strategy and the bigger picture of what's going on and why deacons and where deacons fit in and why they are so important. So important. So that is, that is the goal this morning. You can't talk about deacons. In fact, you can't talk about elders. You can't talk about even just what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ without talking about the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world, and especially the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the local church in the world. You can't talk about deacons without talking about that. And so I don't want to talk about deacons without talking about that. Here's Acts 6, 1 to 7. We're going to parachute in. Here's a little video clip, and then we're going to back out, and we're going to go back, okay? Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, those are the twelve apostles, they summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and they chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. And verse 7, The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You know know what that's like saying? The missiles launched. um, No, it would be like saying it this way. The men were all fed. And you know what happened? The missiles were launched. And the, the, the jets took off. And the battle was underway. Now, wait a minute. Was it the feeding of the men that did it? No. Well, 
Yeah, well, but it's important, right? And this is what is being said here. Because of what happened in 6, 1 to 7, therefore the word kept increasing. It kept on spreading. This is huge, guys. This is huge. I've been in nine different churches over 26 years of being a Christian. I'm going to go back to what Tom said earlier. He touched on it and didn't even know how important it was. And in those nine different churches, there were nine different views of what deacons are. Not all of them very, uh, you know, very greatly from one another. Some of them did. Um, but nine different views of who deacons are, what their role is in the church, and what they do. This is a subject that's very difficult to find any agreement on um, from one church to the next. And so churches know this, and one of the things is, is because there's so much, you know, so, I don't know, there's a lack of clarity on it, it's just easy for churches to let deacons slip through the cracks of the daily life and ministry of the church. And, and then churches go on for weeks and months and years really without giving a whole lot of focus to deacons or at all, or maybe just a a faint, you know, token nod of the head to them. Yes, we, we, we have them. Uh, they don't really do anything, but, but we have them. And everything seems to be fine in the church. The church just goes on and it goes on and, it, and everything appears to be okay. But the interesting thing is, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul wove uh, two distinct positions together. Elders and deacons. Distinct. They're different. Elders are not deacons, and deacons are not elders. But they occur in one chapter. And he put the two lists inseparably together. So if the church chooses to let chapter 3 of 1 Timothy verses 8 to 13 slip through the cracks and become faint and distant and negotiable, what? What prevents them from doing that with verses 1 to 7? regards to elders. Nothing prevents them from going that direction. It is a slippery slope, in my opinion. If a church does not have deacons, you, you're just set up. That church is, is primed to then negotiate away the next layer of leadership. If a church says, you know, we don't really need that layer of leadership, we seem to be doing fine without that layer of leadership, What's to prevent them from saying at some point when the other layer of leadership doesn't seem to be maybe as smooth as they like it to be, helpful as they like it to be, let's just get rid of that one too. So what we're embarking on here this morning is um, trying to understand from the Bible deacon leadership. And Acts 6 has led us to form these six observations about deacon leadership as the local church fulfills its gospel mission. And I will be the first to tell you that in this passage, nowhere will you find the word deacon, and nowhere will you find the word elder. So why on earth would we look at this passage? Because I think what you do find here in Acts 6 uh, are prototype elders. You, you find apostles functioning as shepherds in a local church. And you find that layer of leadership, of shepherding leadership in a local church, a big local church in Jerusalem, selecting out of the body 
another layer of servant leadership under them, alongside them, with them, who serve tables, who serve the root form of the word deacon. So, not specifically called deacons here, not specifically called elders here, but prototype elders and prototype deacons. And what we're going to do this uh, time together and our next time together is we're going to do what we've done when we've looked um, at the heart before and the home is we, we moved from the Old Testament forward through to the New. Well, we're going to do that in the New Testament. We're going to start early on in the New Testament in Acts to look at Acts 6. And then we're going to watch by the time Paul is an older man, later on in his ministry, we're going to watch what kind of morphing goes on from Acts 6 to 1 Timothy 3. So that by the time you get to 1 Timothy 3, oh, there are deacons and there are elders. Not just prototype apostles anymore or prototype servant deacons, but actual elders and deacons. And I think it's undeniable where elders and deacons came from. They came from the way that apostles were functioning in Jerusalem in the early church and the way that these seven men, Stephen, Philip, and the rest, were functioning as servants. All right, so here's the first observation. Number one, elders committed to the gospel of the gospel mission of the church highly value deacon leadership. They highly value deacon leadership. Um, let me put it this way. Um, apostles are not elders. Um, when you read the Bible, you can't in the New Testament, you cannot just take the word apostle and erase it and write in elder. You can't do that. You have to be very careful. Apostles might be functioning as elders at some point, just like you can't say a seed is a tree. But where did the tree come from? It came from the seed. Where do elders come from? I think they come from the idea of what the way the apostles were functioning in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. So here are prototype elders, prototype deacons working together. Now I want you to notice how the gospel mission-minded prototype elders um, were. I want you to see how they were so gospel mission-minded. And this is where I'm going to take the videotape and I'm going to rewind it back to Acts chapter 1. And now we're going to walk forward through it and watch it from the beginning. And we're going to do it this way. Okay? Morning, sunshine. <laughs> Get one of the handouts back there. <laughs> I love that guy. We won't give his name on tape, though. Josh Miles. <laughs> All right. Let's back up. Now what we're doing is we're backing up, and I want you to see the bigger picture. It's the gospel mission that's really going on here. Apostles here, the, Peter and the guys, they've possessed a strong compulsion to just have the gospel go all the way through the city of Jerusalem. Um, go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the, the, the famous verse at the beginning of the, the, the book of Acts, which, by the way, once we finish... Genesis, when we get to that later in, at the end of February, it's not going to be till the end of February now where we start a little series on Genesis. Uh, when we're finished with that, we're going to do Acts. Um, I'm so eager to get into that. But, but watch this. You will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses 
Jesus says, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And there is where we find basically the way the book of Acts is going to be broken down. You apostles, you 12 guys, you 120 plus in verse 15, uh, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be testifiers of me, Jesus Christ, and you're going to do it first in Jerusalem. And you're going to be thorough about it in Jerusalem. And then it's going to go into the next region of Judea and Samaria. And you're going to see how these two things fit together, even as we're looking at um, Acts 6 today. And then eventually to the remotest parts of the earth. And so where do you find Paul at the end of, well, let's think about this. Where do you find the apostles in chapter 1? They are in the capital city of the Jews, city of David, right near the temple, <coughs> meeting together. Where do you find Paul in Acts 28? capital city of the pagans. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now Rome is not the remotest part of the earth but boy I tell you it's the capital city of the pagan world. It seems to be going just like God said it would go. And these guys, these twelve are very concerned about this. They know now, they refer to themselves as witnesses. They get it. We need to witness of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> they were very concerned that now Judas is gone and there were supposed to be 12 of them. We need to get one more. And it needs to be one of them who is with us, uh, went in and out among us, verse 21, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these kinds of people must become witnesses with us of his resurrection. We're, we're going to be testifying about Jesus Christ all throughout Jerusalem. We need one more witness. Go to chapter 2, verse 14. Pentecost takes place. The Spirit of God is poured out on the disciples. <coughs> Excuse me. They're speaking in tongues. And Peter needs to provide an explanation. And he takes his stand with the eleven. He raises his voice and he declares to them the words of God. He says how, well, here's what Joel is aiming for and talking about. And what's happening here at Pentecost is something like that, that is going on. Go to verse 41 of chapter 2. So all of those who had received Peter's word, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's witnessing. They were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. Then what did those souls do? Well, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. These guys were very concerned to constantly keep in front of the disciples, those who responded to the gospel, the words of God. Go to verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The gospel mission is working in Jerusalem. They're doing just as they were supposed to. They're doing just as the Holy Spirit said, as Jesus told them. Go to chapter 3 then, verse 11. You know the story of Peter and John going up to the temple in the ninth hour? And there's that lame man who's been sitting there every day for his whole life. And he raises him up and he's, and he's healed. In verse 11, uh, that man was clinging to Peter and John and all the people ran together to them at the so-called uh, portico of Solomon, full of amazement. And when Peter saw this, he opened his mouth and he spoke to them, he witnessed to them, he testified to them, he preached to them, he taught them. Chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, back up for a second, even down to verse 19. Look at, these, look at the way that Peter is witnessing. Repent and return. 
so that your sins may be wiped away. Uh, he, he's preaching. He's, he's concerned about the mission of the gospel. Go to chapter 4 now, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Exactly. That's what they were supposed to do. That's the mission of Jesus Christ. They were opening their mouths. They were going into the city. And so they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. The mission of the gospel is going very well in the city of Jerusalem. Drop down to verse 12. Peter has to give a defense of what's going on. He says, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and they understood that they were uneducated and untrained, and they were amazed, and they began to recognize, oh, these are the guys who are with Jesus. And now they can't stop talking about him. See, they're very concerned with the gospel mission. Look at verse 17. So what are they going to do? What are these religious leaders going to do? You know, so that it will not spread, verse 17, any further among the people, let us warn them to shut up. Speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Well, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard because we're witnesses. We've been given a mission. We have power from God. We are to do this. We can't stop. And they threatened them a little bit more, verse 21. And they sent them off. Then they all went back together and they were praying together, verse 29. And here's part of their prayer request. Oh, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, your slaves, may speak your word with all confidence. Don't let anything take away from this mission. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And you know what? God answered their prayer. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. So the mission is just emboldened to go forward even more. Now go to, you know what happens then. Chapter 5, you got Ananias and Sapphira who lie in the body and they lose their lives. And yet all the more, verse 14, believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and men were constantly added to their number. The mission is continuing. Verse 17 but the high priest rose along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid their hands on the apostles <clears throat> again, and they put him in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak, and they began to teach. Now you know what happens. Um, the soldiers don't even know that the guys aren't there. So somehow this angel gets them out and they don't even know they're gone. And then they discover it and everybody's bewildered. And as they're discovering this and they're bewildered, somebody comes in and says, hey, those guys that you threw in prison, they're in the temple and they're teaching. Look at verse 27. When they had brought them, and they brought them back without violence. I like this. They're a little nervous now. Everybody else they'd locked up before. 
um, never got out like that. And so when they brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What an ironic statement, right? Ah, oh, if only his blood was upon you to wash you clean, right? But Peter and the apostles answered, we have to obey God rather than men. Look at verse 40. You know what they do to them? They decide to beat them. So calling the apostles in, they flogged them. And again, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And so they went back to their homes and they sat quietly and watched TV. <clears throat> they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That is a mission going on. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1, the video we started with. Now at this time, when the mission is going like this, at this time is when a complaint arose. You see, man, you can't just start at chapter 6, verse 1, drop in and look at the video. You've got to back up and you've got to get the full run of it so you understand where deacons fit in the context of the whole. And there were gospel mission-minded apostles functioning like prototype elders. They couldn't take their eyes off the gospel mission. The church was experiencing great blessing in the gospel mission. It's amazing. With this interesting complaint that arises and this need that arises, these men valued a specific, qualified group of servants. They valued, they needed, they were dependent upon, they valued a specific, qualified group of servants to rise up that didn't exist before and assist them. Why? Because the gospel mission has to go. It has to continue. And it will never do that if we have to focus our attention on this. Do you understand? Prototype deacons in this passage were raised up to help prototype elders and the church remain focused on the weighty and costly and yet very fruitful gospel mission. That's why a church needs deacons. But my fear is a church needs to first understand that there's a gospel mission that we have to do. We have to bring the gospel to everyone who will hear it. And we have to be planning for that. That's why we need deacons. We don't need deacons just because the Bible says, well, there's elders and deacons. you got to feed soldiers. Not just because you got to feed soldiers. They're hungry. They're men. they got to eat. No, you got to feed them because there's a battle. And they've got to do their part. And the battle must be fought and it must, we must win. The church needs men who long to see that gospel mission Succeed. The gospel mission of this church is much bigger than, than the elders. Look, the gospel mission of this early church in, in, in Jerusalem, it's bigger than Peter. Now there, things are beginning to happen that Peter is not a big enough man to be able to do. He can't do all of it. A complaint arises. 
But the way that gospel mission-minded prototype elders want to handle that is let's get some well-qualified men to deal with it so that we can keep the hand on the rudder and so that we can keep the, the foot on the throttle and let's go. Let's push. Let's not take our eyes off of it. But get somebody qualified on it now who is not us. Those kind of men had to be connected to other like-minded servant leaders who could complement what Peter could not do and did not want to do. There was a, a necessary, crucial, important ministry that had to be fulfilled. But Peter wasn't going to do it. It was necessary. This is a massive injustice that is taking place in the local church in Jerusalem. But Peter wasn't going to do it. Oh, he's concerned. It has to be done. But you know what? There's something bigger here going on that, that has to... We cannot veer off course. It has to keep going on. So let's get some men on it. He valued a, a, a servant layer of leadership under him. Second observation, number two. Deacons are men marked by the fullness of the Spirit. Deacons are men, or these prototype deacons, are men marked by the fullness of the Spirit. I want to just take a notice of this one description. Verse 3 Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Verse 5, Stephen was just that, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? Why is fullness of the Holy Spirit important? Well, I want to back you up again. Let's look at the video. We've got to rewind it. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. What did Jesus say? Um, you'll receive power. Okay, they're concerned about the kingdom of God. They're still thinking that what God is going to do is um, establish the kingdom for Israel, in Israel, through Israel, and uh, organize things that way. Um, and Jesus says, "It's not. you don't need to know the times and epochs for that right now. Um, what you actually need for the kingdom of God to do what it needs to do right now is you need power. And you don't have it yet. And the power is connected to me, the Holy Spirit. So um, stay here, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. You can't even begin to testify of me and what I'm aiming for and what I'm going to do through my kingdom of God and how it's going to express itself now in a way that nobody saw coming. Okay, what you need to do that is me, in you, the Holy Spirit, and you need power to do it. The nature of the church coming into play and in, into existence, the nature of the gospel mission is nothing. It will go nowhere without the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. You know what happens? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And something amazing happens there. I think it's basically the undoing of the Tower of Babel. God gave them all different languages and scattered them all over the earth. And now he's saying, I'm going to take people of all different kinds of languages and I'm going to bring them right back. And what I'm going to unite them around is we all hear them speaking the mighty things of God. That's another sermon for another time. We'll talk about that. Chapter 2, verse 17, he quotes from Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour out uh, forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's important. Chapter 2, verse 33 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Verse 38. Peter said to those who were convicted, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's crucial, the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Peter and the apostles believed this. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. This is when... um, the high priests and their rulers and elders were gathered in Jerusalem. They placed Peter and, and uh, was it John with him? I forget. Peter and John, and they put him right in the middle. And notice this. Get this. Don't, don't skip over this. This is so huge. Verse 7. Okay, this is Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. High priestly descent guys. What's their question? Verse 7. What is this power? Was it tangible? Was it observable that these were men of power? Completely. These guys could see it. What's this power? What name? In what name have you done this? And then Peter, what? I love it. Filled with the Holy Spirit. More power to speak. Peter knew this. Go to verse 31. You remember this. They get threatened, they go back, they pray, and when they had prayed, verse 31, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was crucial to what was going on. Chapter 5, verse 3, they're very concerned. Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? He's our power. What are you lying to the Spirit of God for? People died for that. Of course they're concerned for what's going on. Yes, Scott. Yes, Question: You have in, in Scripture you see at least even an act we've already observed a receiving of the Holy Spirit yeah. and a filling. Yeah. How can you kind of maybe explain that a little bit? Yeah, more? I'll give you a short answer. I, I, do, I do think there's um, a difference. There's something in, in terms of the, the Spirit of God in Acts chapter two is coming upon believers in a way that is not described prior. I think there is a difference, and I'm trying to explain that, between what is going on in terms of the Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2 and then the continual filling that happens later. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is something that is new, that has not been described in any pages of Scripture before. It has not been witnessed happening in any page before quite like this. However, and this is a whole other message for a whole other time. (laughs) I am not prepared to say that that means automatically that Old Testament believers did not have the Spirit. It's not described at all in the same way as it is in the New Testament. The the nature of fallen flesh has always been what the nature of fallen flesh is. And Old Testament believers needed God's regenerating work. And Moses spoke of it in the way that he knew, circumcise your heart. And yet, how can any one of those... Believing Jews do that. They can't. God must come and do something. But the interesting thing is, it's not described in the Old Testament as the Holy Spirit in you, upon you. That's what Acts chapter 2 does. Acts chapter 2 inaugurates a new day in which believers now, the Spirit of God is clearly the one who brings about that regenerating condition. Okay?
Now, along the way, the Spirit continues to fill. And um, you anticipated where we would be going in this. And Ephesians 5.18, we saw this. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a command that is not a command saying, look, you need to be regenerated again. You need to be born again by the Spirit. No, you just need His fullness because you are nothing without His power. Okay? That's my shortened summary of how I would explain that. Um, look at verse 17. You want to see what, a, what, in contrast, look at, we're in chapter 5, verse 17. The high priest rises up again, along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees. And what are they filled with? Minor contrast, jealousy. That's what's driving them. But the apostles are being driven by the Spirit of God. Um, chapter 5, verse 32. And Paul says, or Paul, Peter says, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So when Acts chapter 6 finally comes along with its challenge, its controversy, of course they would think of somebody. We can't pick a guy who's not full of the Spirit. Why would we want to do that? We've only seen the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. Nothing less than that could be a servant leader. He must be a man full of the Spirit. Of course. And Stephen was indeed this. Verse 8, Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was performing great signs and um, great wonders and signs among the people. Look at verse 10. They were unable, they, they finally grabbed him, and they are giving him a hard time, and they are unable to cope with the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. Um, go to chapter 7, verse 51. He gives this long sermon, you remember. And he says, he notices this about um, what is happening. Gosh, these, these, it seems like these Jews have been this way the whole time. Look at verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears. He's using Old Testament language. And you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, etc.? See, Philip or Stephen understood this. In verse 55, they begin gnashing their teeth at him, but he, oh, he was full of the Spirit. Surprise, did you know that? He was full of the Spirit. Of course, it's not a surprise. You know he was. And being full of the Spirit, he was able to gaze intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was a man full of the Spirit. Philip was too. The persecution breaks out in chapter 8 uh, and Philip scatters. Look at verse 29 of chapter 8. The Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. You know, the Ethiopian eunuch is on his way back. He'd been in Jerusalem to worship. And then when he's all done, verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Philip's... Um, Beginning of his conversation and to the end, and the book ends on his ministry to that Ethiopian are conducted by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is crucial. And, and we need to begin with this. Guys, um, what is going on in Acts is, is a description of what happened in the early church. Uh, it is not wise to say, therefore, that equals what is going on today. There's some leaps made there. It's not prescription. It is description. It is narrative. That's what narrative does. Um, but you still have to come back to this. Ephesians 5.18 calls us to come back to this in terms of the fullness of the Spirit. Guys, are, are, are you 
aware of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I fear in, in, in our theological camp. I fear in our theological camp we're going to diminish the Spirit. Because we've seen excesses in other theological camps and exaggerations of the Spirit that are not biblical. And so we recoil and we pull back when we go too far another way. But it is undeniable that the mission of the gospel does not go forward apart from the Spirit of God. Empowering. Are you guys aware personally of your tremendous need for him each day in your participation in the mission of the gospel? Are you aware of his prominence in the church if we are to be effective for Jesus Christ? How often do your thoughts, guys, drift toward the Spirit of God? His fullness, his power. How often do you just find yourself assuming his presence? Well, I'm a Christian. He's in me. That's true. That's true. And yet there's so much more. Please. Um, In light of what you just said, can you uh, kind of address um, 2 Timothy 1 7, where he tells us that God's given us the spirit, not timidity, but power? And kind of, how does that work itself out in the believer's life? Yeah, I, if we're kind of acting like we're not aware of it or neglecting it or. Is that capitalized in your version? Uh, Spirit? No. 2 Timothy 1 7. Um, it's an interpretive decision that is made by, you know, at least the NAS here. And I don't know if I would have reason to disagree with that, to not say that that is the Holy Spirit. Um, it would make sense that it's an attitude of, of timidity, a, a spiritual kind of nature of timidity. God didn't give us a spiritual nature of timidity, but one of power. I don't know, but, you know, I, 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 haven't, I haven't looked at that. Does anybody else have an idea on that? Who's maybe studied that? I, uh... But a spirit of power and love and discipline. Uh, I got the red pen out right now. that far into heresy if it is. I'm not sure. Dave, maybe maybe more specifically what you're talking about, maybe a better passage, is what we see in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Remember this, guys? Our gospel did not come to you in word only. Oh, it came in words, but it just didn't come merely in words. But it came also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then remind yourselves here, who is he describing there? He's not describing that the power of God was upon you Thessalonians when you received it and the Holy Spirit was not upon you when you received. 
and uh, full conviction was not yours. You weren't convicted by your sin. Paul is saying, you know what kind of men we were. We were men of power. We were men of the Holy Spirit. And we were men with full conviction. That makes total sense, doesn't it? In, in, in looking at Acts and the role of the Spirit of God upon them. Um, so that there, there cannot be a, a spirit of timidity, therefore, in us. Uh, there must not be one in that sense. So guys, I just want to, I just want to maybe rattle your cage a little bit or let God's word do that in regards to the spirit and uh, be thinking of your need for him and fullness of the spirit in everything you do. Number three, third observation. Deacons, like all disciples, are committed to the gospel mission of the church. We're back in Acts chapter six now. Deacons, like all disciples of Jesus Christ, are committed to the gospel mission of the church. In general, get this, the Spirit of God makes no other type of disciple when he applies the atoning work of the cross to a believer. When he regenerates and when he creates, he only knows how to regenerate and create one kind of disciple. One who is passionate for the expansion of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we're all going to become missionaries and move away to a foreign country, but all of us, each one of us, because of the Spirit of God in us, well, we become witnesses. So at school where you work, in your neighborhood, in your classes you are in, you are a testifier of Jesus Christ. You testify of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God could make you nothing less. Now, we live in a day where Christians can live and live and never testify. And think they're okay. And that is not biblical Christianity. The Spirit of God only knows how to make one kind of disciple. A witness. Now what I want to show you is that there's a reason for this. I'm going to direct your attention to the Holy Spirit. Um, And the Word of God. I want you to think about this. I'll give it to you up front. The Word of God is a witness of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is also a witness of Jesus Christ. If the Word of God richly dwells in you, and the Holy Spirit is in you, you have two witnesses in you witnessing to Jesus Christ. What will you be? What must you be? A witness. You can't be anything but a witness of Jesus Christ. Right? Let's confirm this with the Word of God. Go back to John chapter 5, verse 39. I want you to see this. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is confronting the religious leaders around him. And he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these scriptures that what? Testify about me. The scriptures witness, they testify of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Look down at verse 46 of John 5. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? But he wrote about me. The Pentateuch, the Torah, is about Jesus. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 24. Last chapter of Luke. So Jesus is telling the people around him that. After he has died and raised from the dead, he's walking with a couple of his disciples, and then he's going to be meeting with all of his disciples. 
He says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things, what? Concerning himself in all the scripture. So Moses and all of the prophets, not seven of the prophets, all of the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself. Because why? Because the word of God testifies of Jesus, Messiah. When he meets up with his disciples later, watch this. Verse 44. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses, in the Torah, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written in these scriptures. I'm opening your mind to understand these scriptures, and here's what's written in these scriptures. Guess what it is? It's the gospel. Messiah will suffer. Messiah will rise again on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. There's your gospel. In in rudimentary, just basic form. Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations. We've got to begin in Jerusalem. You are what? Verse 20, or 48. Witnesses! You couldn't be anything but. Verse 49. Watch this, guys. Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. What is that? Who is that? The Holy Spirit. You are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Guess what? Here's what's happening right here. The Word of God, which is testifying of Jesus Christ... The Holy Spirit who will come with power, who is also, as you'll see in a minute, a testifier of Jesus Christ, is converging and with the disciple who is a witness. Disciples of Jesus Christ cannot be anything but witnesses of Jesus Christ. And that's what you have to wrestle with. How is it that God has shaped you by his spirit to make you into a testifier of Jesus Christ? You're not going to do it the way that I know some guys do it. It was just such boldness on the street, doing what they do. You're not going to maybe be that way. But I'll tell you what, where you live, God puts you there so you'd be a witness. Because that's what he made you to be. So figure out what that is. Be what God made you to be. Do what God made you to be and do. Okay, so the word of God is a witness. It witnesses to Jesus Christ. Let's talk about how um, the Holy Spirit is a witness. Go to John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit also witnesses or testifies of Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says. He will take of mine... And disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he, the Spirit, takes of mine and he will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit loves to make much of Jesus Christ. Go to Acts chapter 5 verse 32. We we saw this. But watch this. Acts chapter 5 verse 32. Peter knew this. Here's what he says. I love it. We are witnesses of these things. Of course, how Peter, of course you are. You couldn't be anything but this. 
And so is the Holy Spirit. See, Peter knows the Spirit is a witness of these things whom God has given. So again, the Word of God testifies of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. When those two converge and do a saving work in a believer, what's the believer going to become? A witness of Jesus Christ. That's what you are. That's what I am. We all are. Now, what's the whole point of this? Deacons, like all disciples, are committed to the gospel mission of the local church. Of course they are. How could they not be? Because deacons come out of what disciples are. And what are disciples? Witnesses. The only kind of people to choose deacons from are witnesses who are concerned about the gospel mission of Jesus Christ going forth wherever they live. Stephen had become a witness of Jesus Christ. In verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he had when he was speaking. He's there testifying. And then all of chapter 7 includes this amazing uh, rebuke that traces from the Old Testament all the way through to the day when the Jews are rejecting Jesus still. He testified. He, in fact, our word martyr means what? A testifier. It just came to be understood that testifiers die. So we'll refer to a a dead Christian as a testifier. Philip had become a witness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Go to chapter 8, verse 4. I love this. This is so great. And I can't wait to preach Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. The, the Saul is a part of the, the persecution and the church scatters from Jerusalem now into Judea and Samaria. And, and by the way, I'm going to stop for just a moment. I have heard um, people explain that the reason the church took its mission from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria Well, it's because of persecution. And, that's true. And the reason it was taken into Judea and Samaria by persecution is because the disciples, they just weren't getting it. They had become uh, content with Jerusalem. And I want you to know that I think that is an absolute lie. These, there is nothing in Acts chapter 1 through 7 that indicates these are guys who are comfortable. They are getting their butts beat up and down. They are getting beaten for this, guys. They are, they are giving their lives for this. They are concerned that this gospel must go all the way through into Jerusalem, and they had no idea that it was going to spill out of Jerusalem through persecution, I don't think. But listen, these are not guys who are soft at all. These are guys who are serious. Who are giving their lives for this. And Philip was one of them. In chapter 8, verse 4, he had been, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he began proclaiming Christ to them. Do you see that? He was an amazing testifier of Christ. Look at verse 12. And when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Drop down to verse 26. You know, then the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert road. And so he got up and he went. 
Verse 29, that's when the Spirit said, go up into this chariot. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and he be, and beginning with this scripture in Isaiah, he preached Jesus to them or to him. Verse 39, the Spirit snatched him away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing and Philip found himself. I love that. I'd like to have that experience once, wouldn't you? He just found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, what was he doing? He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, fast forward. We don't hear about Philip again until Acts 21. Go to Acts 21. Acts 21, verse 8. This is now, Paul is, is rushing to get back to um, Jerusalem in time uh, for uh, Pentecost, I believe. And so he's on his way to get there. And on the next day, verse 8 of Acts 21, we left, Luke says, and we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the deacon. Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. Philip started as a gospel mission-minded man serving tables. And by the end of Acts, what's he known for? Philip, you've got an awesome bread recipe, man. That's good. No, that's not what he's known for at all. You're the evangelist. You're the consummate witness of Jesus Christ. There's no other kind of deacon to have than one who is a disciple and all disciples are witnesses of Jesus. This is the kind of leader that needs to lead ministries of this church. There's no other kind of disciple to pick to lead ministries as, in, as a deacon servant leader than this kind of... Now, I understand some of us might lure ourselves into a way of thinking that we're not actually witnesses, but we are. Okay? The gospel, mission, direction, and influence, and flavor in this church is going to be protected and nurtured and promoted and advanced to every corner of this church through men like this who lead those ministries that we appoint deacons to. There, there should be nowhere in the church a ministry that is wasting motion towards the, the fulfillment of the gospel mission because it's led by deacons who are disciples, who are concerned to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. The first prototype deacons were amazing witnesses for Jesus Christ. Ama get this, amazing, let's, let's put it this way, amazing witnesses of Jesus Christ served widows' bread. That's the point. We're always witnesses.
that's good. Absolutely. We need to recover that and um, understand what our, our identity in Christ is. We're witnesses. Number four, the gospel mission of the church is more effective with deacon leadership. The church back in Acts chapter 6 has the potential uh, to quickly become, if it isn't already, stuck, sedentary, unable to contribute toward the gospel mission. Do you understand what this is in Acts chapter 6? There is here a, a, a potential charge of racism. Ethnic favoritism. These are Jews who had adopted Greek culture. Those are the Hellenistic Jews. They are Jews who said, you know, we live in in the Roman Empire. I know we're in the Holy Land, but Greeks have, and Greek culture has influenced everything, and they adopted some of it. Oh, but there were some who held out. And they always retained their Hebrew culture, and they didn't give in to that. And those were the Hebrew Jews. And somebody decided that, you know what, we're going to make sure the Hebrew widows get the food first, and if there's not enough, well, then the Greek ones who adopted Greek culture, you know, the ones who had compromised, you know, they'll get nothing. That's what's going on. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine today a church saying, you know, because of the ethnicity of this group of people, let's kind of, um, let's set them over here to the side, and let's do this with this other group over here first. Can you imagine How effective would that church be with the gospel in its community? I mean, this is huge. The gospel mission of the church is actually now more effective because of this deacon leadership that steps in. In challenged ministry areas like this, is this a powder keg? Oh my goodness. There is gasoline everywhere and people are walking around with matches trying to see That's what the situation is in Acts chapter 6. In a challenged ministry area like that one, God's desire is to bring a certain kind of man to it. Right? He wants to bring to this situation a gospel mission influence to redirect that ministry. Something there that is very anti-gospel is going on. And the only kind of man that can fix that kind of a situation is a gospel mission-minded man of character. Yeah, they're not thinking, well, wait a minute, who knows how to bake bread? Do you know how to bake bread? I don't know how to bake bread. Do you know how to bake it? I don't know how. We need somebody who can bake bread. That's who we need to take care of this problem so then there won't be this issue anymore. That's not what's going on. It needs to be men who are full of the Spirit. It needs to be men of certain character. It needs to be men who are gospel mission-minded. The wisdom of the early prototype elders like um, Peter, it was to bring gospel mission-minded men into this challenging arena and then impact and influence those neglected, hungry widows. It was They needed to come and they needed to, to bring the gospel influence on the offenders, the ones who were offending others. They needed to bring the gospel to bear on the ones who were offended. And it was men like Stephen and Philip so God's desire here is, I think, for the, for the local church to have every ministry in the local church that an elder would say, it wouldn't be wise for us to do that. It would be that that ministry would be influenced by a gospel mission-minded man. 
Somebody like a Stephen. Somebody like a Philip and the rest. Every ministry in the church should be equally shaped by the gospel mission. It needs to promote the gospel mission within it. <coughs> and deacons are his catalyst to do this. Again, verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, all of this is over. And what happens? The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And by the way, the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, had plenty of bread too. Okay, all of it was taken care of. The church was more effective with this kind of leadership. Number five, deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it fulfills its gospel mission. Got two blanks to fill in there. Deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it fulfills its gospel mission. What do, you, what do I mean by humble service? Well, chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter six, verse one, um, the daily serving of food. That is just humble servant leadership. That, that idea there is just you are you are a servant in a house and you make sure people eat. And that's your only job. You don't rise above that. That's, that's as far as you rise. You make sure other people eat. Have the food in front of them. Uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Serving tables, same idea. That's just very humble service. And it's a specific need, isn't it? It's, it's a very specific one. It's, oh, there's a certain group of widows in the church who are not getting food. They need to have it. Let's make sure that that task, Peter says, is fulfilled in verse 3. Um, Select some men whom we may put in charge of this task, this specific need within the church. Um, much of what happens in this body and in any church, in order for the church to do what it needs to do, it just requires humble service. Somebody who will put on an apron uh, and, and, just, and just serve. Okay? Alex, you have a thought? Yeah, so... Uh, Hearing this, I'm kind of struck by the, the, the notion that you know when churches get really big, there seem to pop up a lot of needs that they spread to serve people, and um, it seems like the knee-jerk reaction is to put a baker in the position of someone who's spread, right? Who's not necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit or wise, but can can solve that issue as it arises. How do you? No, that's a great no, that's a great observation by just by the very thing of what you try to be aware of what we're talking about even right here that looking looking back at scripture uh, if you want to look at an example of an early church that got really big three thousand in one day five thousand that's a big church now, now that's not to say they all meet in an auditorium they're probably in house to house and scattered wherever they can to meet together and in the courts of a temple at this point still um, but how did they handle what was on their mind uh, spiritual men, godly men. And to the degree that you set this aside today, and it might be over here, but it's not in my main view, it's peripherally there. It's less on my mind when I think of needs and complaints. Look, I just... Complainers go to church. Injustices take place in church. I mean, here we are, right? Um, and... It's easier just to go, you know, fix that. Just fix that. Make it go away. I, I don't like it when there's complaints. And, and, and if this is over here, and I can kind of see it, 
I might not think of what kind of man it should be, what kind of servant it should be. If I keep this right here, and there's a complaint, I'm like, wait, I can't even see it, just a minute. Oh, no, wait, I don't want to see it without seeing it through this. What do I need? I need spiritual people, men who are godly people. It all comes with what we do with the Word of God, and if it starts to slip off to the side and gets put over here, oh my goodness, that is not a good sign. When you see that begin to happen at this church, if you see it happening at this church, please say something. Scott. I think another thing to keep in mind is what is the real issue? And here, you know, the issue is not necessarily just we need more bread. Uh, keep your eye on the bigger picture of shepherding a church and growing, steering a church, all for the ministry purpose of the church. And so sometimes when we see a benevolent need and we see a need in the church, you need to make sure you look under the surface to see what the real issue is while you're meeting that need. And that helps you understand the type of man you need to address it. Yeah. It puts it in perspective, too. Tom? Yeah, Alex, your question, your comment, just kind of uh, made me think of a situation at Grace Bible Church that the elders are convicted and convinced of, but we probably haven't communicated well. Uh, I know you'd have to be blind not to realize that week after week after week we ask for workers for next generation. Uh, and there are some applications where people have a specific desire to serve in a specific area that there might not be a need and there's still another need, but we have prerequisites. And we, we probably haven't done a good job of saying that prerequisites are and figure in fill out an application but uh, if you're not in a small group because we care more about your heart than filling the space in the next generation so we want to be you know, as we oversee the church we want to be sure that whoever is serving that that they're moving in the direction of caring for their own heart and that they are in fellowship with body and that being part of Grace Bible Church just doesn't happen on Sunday. And uh, since I'm there, I'll make a plug. We really could use a couple of uh, people in, in the upper elementary. And just so you, you don't think, gosh, it's uh, why can't they fill this spot? We added a new ministry, the student ministries, which took some people in our elementary and moved them up into working with sixth grade and above. Plus, because of growth, we're adding a class. We still need a couple of teachers. Talk to Eric. Uh, I, we would, Eric, raise your hand. Uh, but know this, as we ask people and come alongside people serving at this church, because your concern is so valid, I would rather have a void than have unqualified people. Uh, so... Let me add this too. There are still times when we uh, unfortunately fill certain kinds of servant positions and we do it too quickly. We find that after having done it, we have somebody who's not (laughs) very thoughtful about their own heart before God. It it still happens to us. We have to then, you know, shepherd the decision we made and and, uh, work on that. But, um, the thing I want to encourage you guys with is is the kinds of things that these guys were doing that Philip and Stephen were doing were things that most men in most churches want to graduate from. 
Most men who have any aspiration to be involved love to lead somehow. Is there, is there a place where I, maybe I could teach, where I could have some influence? I like that look of kind of the idea of getting influence and you know, shepherding some people. Can I have some discipleship responsibilities? Well, actually, you know, we, there's a lot of chairs to stack, and there's some tarps to roll up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think my giftedness, though, is <laughs> I have this desire and, you know, so, look, did Philip remain a, a, a waiter all of his life? No. He became Philip the evangelist. And you might become somebody great, um, but Philip started serving bread. And um, it's very important. And it needs to be a certain kind of minute. It doesn't mean you don't have any influence. And it doesn't mean you don't know the word of God. Oh my goodness, Stephen knew the word of God and he died for it. In Jerusalem, a waiter died because of the, the irrefutable wisdom that, of God that he had in the scriptures. That waiter died. Not because of the way you serve bread. Alex. Well, I'll also say this. Um, that I personally, when you see leaders in the church taking on servant roles, that speaks volumes. Not just a teaching role or a, you know, an elevated position in the church. When you see someone clearing plates, stacking chairs, sweeping floors, who's in a leadership role in the church, Praise God. Um, I also want to note, let you know, this this passage has influenced us and in how we view um, the task of a deacon. Also, let me give an example, and then uh, I'll use it to explain. Um, Mike Caruso is a deacon in this church. He is a servant that we. Um, Evaluated according to the deacon qualifications. He is a godly man, uh, a qualified man in our opinion, and there is a task that this church needs that the elders don't really want to put their time and their attention to, and it's looking for property or a facility that we could be in perhaps full term. He's a realtor. He knows how to do that. And so part of what he does with his work every day, every week, is he keeps his eye open and he keeps his ear to the ground on facilities. And every once in a while we get an email that says, hey, what do you think of this? And let's go take a look at that. And um, he does that. Now, let's say um, sometime in 2011 we, we actually find our own facility, our own land, our own whatever. And, and, we, we, and then that's, what does Mike Caruso do then? Does he look for the next piece of property for us? Because he's the deacon of finding facility. No, the way that we have um, viewed it is, is um, a specific task arises and prototype elders, at least in Acts, said we need a certain kind of man for that. And what we have taken away from that applicational-wise is when that task is finished, you no longer need a deacon for it. The man that you said is qualified as a deacon to do it, he may still be, hopefully, Lord willing, still qualified as a deacon, but his task is done. And so we would take that deacon and say, we no longer need your service in that way. But you know what? We might say there's another arena 
of ministry that needs to be taken care of. And because you're a qualified man, we know already, would you consider serving in this way? And thus, therein lies one of the huge differences between a deacon and an elder. Because an elder is always overseeing the flock, shepherding the flock of God. And a deacon is more task-driven. But did they, were these guys, did these guys shepherd people? Do you, do you, you don't read Acts 6 and actually believe that Hellenistic widows who were greatly offended just had guys walk up to them and go, here. here. No, I'll tell you what. You think these guys, full of the spirit and full of faith and had lots of wisdom, do you think they maybe sat down and said, I know, it's, it, this is wrong what's been going on. Um, but let's consider the gospel. I mean, these guys were pastoring too. They were shepherding, no doubt about it. But they were task-driven, primarily, where elders are shepherd, caring constantly. Uh, it, their season of shepherding doesn't begin and end. It just begins. And it never ends until the church is done. Um, so that's what we say. It's, it's humble service and it's specific service in the body. Lastly, number six. Deacons are often near complaints and controversy. Deacons are often near complaints and controversy as the church fulfills its gospel mission. As I said earlier, unhappy people are in the church. Um, complainers go to church. Now, these complainers were legitimate complainers. This was a legitimate complaint. Injustices happen even in the church where the apostles oversee, that they oversee. Um, injustices happen. Scandal happens. What do you think about this shepherding need, guys? Um, again, lots of men want to teach and preach. They, want, they like the idea of being locked up in a, in, a, in a study or in an office for many hours a week only to step out in front of a, of a group and to remain a little bit untouchable. That can be very appealing to the flesh because it's a position of influence. It's a position that has, uh, it's a position that has power because of the, the word that you're, you're wanting to use. Those men have to be really careful of that and um, they like that kind of idea of influence. But, but where are the men who have a heart to step into the middle of a complaint in the body? That's what the disciples were facing. That's what the prototype elders were facing. We need to find some men who are willing to step into the middle of this legitimate complaint. There's an injustice in this church taking place. Who are the men that need to step right into the middle of it? What do you think, guys, about stepping... Imagine you. There's an injustice going on in your church. What do you think about being the man who steps right into it face-to-face? The church needs men like that. And if you are not that man today, you need to become that man. Because you will never attend a church that is empty of complaint or injustice. What do you think about stepping into the midst of controversy, guys? What do you have to keep your eyes on in the midst of stepping into complaint? You're about to go into a meeting and there is controversy, there's complaint, somebody is really unhappy. What, 
must your mind and your focus be on? The gospel. If you are not concerned or if you're forgetful about the gospel, you are going to probably not help solve the problem. You might actually become a part of the problem. You must be a gospel mission-minded man who steps into the midst of complaints and controversy. Our Savior and his gospel and his mission need to be on your mind. Let's ask it this way. Okay, these precious widows... Um, very near to the heart of God, widows have always been in Scripture. Here they are in the, in the early church. What would he want? Here's, here's one of his precious believers, a precious woman who is without somebody to care for her. What would he want? What kind of a person does God want to come and minister to this woman? One who will help her put her eyes and her mind and her sights on the gospel. On Jesus Christ. It takes that kind of a servant to do that. There's no better man for complainers than one who is focused on the gospel. So elders participate in the mission of the church. They help direct the gospel mission of the church. We've seen that. They help oversee the gospel mission of the church. And deacons, we find, these prototype guys, became a very necessary layer of servant leadership that is not less concerned with the gospel. Do you understand that? Peter is getting beat. He's like a prototype elder. He's getting beat for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. He picks, they pick, the church picks a layer of leadership that is just as committed to the gospel Stephen dies for it. Philip becomes Philip the evangelist. Do you see these two layers of leadership? Gospel mission-minded. They are on their way to something. The mission of the gospel. They are invading territory. They've got big guns in the gospel that are going to get fired. What kind of... But there's this complaint that arises. You better have the right kind of men thinking about the right kinds of things to serve in these positions of leadership. Now... Next time we'll actually go to 1 Timothy 3 and we'll watch how all of this, I think, in Acts 6 developed and morphed into uh, what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3. Um, So guys, when you think of deacons in a church, just don't think of servants who primarily just um, fulfill mercy ministry types of things. Uh, When you think of a deacon, you need to think of a man who loves the gospel, who loves the word of God. You need to, when you think of a, of a, of a deacon, you, you need to think of a man who loves to teach and evangelize and preach the gospel. When you think of a deacon, you need to think of somebody who's shepherd-hearted, who likes people, who wants to care for people, who will step into the middle of, of even trouble. When you think of a deacon, you need to think of a man who will bring the gospel to bear on the people that he, he ministers to. Does that make sense? The next time we'll actually look at the qualifications. All right, we're going to take our remaining bit of time here, last 25 minutes, and we are going to spend some small group time. Tom. Scott, you kind of elaborated on uh, Mike Caruso's yes. role in the past, and the Lord willing that he provided that Mike's past within. Just for the sake of somebody who might be newer here, could you kind of give us a little bit 
give an overview of how maybe like if Eric or if Josh or Matt, how their task really kind of has no end as long as we're here. Yeah, not every deacon's um, task um, has an end like Mike's does. Um, we have determined that there's a task that we want done, an important task that we want done in the church. It's called um, setting the church up, uh, helping provide worship, music, worship to sing, um, and then tearing it all down. That's a task that we uh, want to see be done. So we have put a deacon in, in charge of that. Um, we don't see that necessarily as a preaching, teaching position like an elder. We see that as a servant leader who does that. Oh, but we want the guy to be able to love the Word of God and um, be able to be equipped to handle the Word of God. And that's Josh Kelso, who is our deacon over worship. We also have decided there's another task uh, that needs to take place, and that's what we want our children to be well instructed uh, while we are in our, our worship service and the Word of God is preached to us. And so we have, um, we have Eric, who's overseeing the uh, upper elementary, and he is uh, the man that we have asked to do that. We have evaluated him according to uh, the, the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, and, and we laid hands on him to, to do that years ago, and he continues to, to serve in that capacity, um, helping to serve our families in that way. That, the, the, those, his position, Josh's position, um, Matt Kelso's position as Discovery Dinner, that we saw that, that that was growing into a ministry that was requiring administration and care and thought uh, to a level where we said we, it'd be good to put a qualified man there. And so we, we did that and we put him there. You know, might there come a day when Discovery Ministry won't continue as it is? Maybe. And at that point, Matt won't any longer continue that. Or it may just continue on as long as we have the church. Same thing with set up and tear down and worship with Josh. Same thing with Eric. These are tasks that we think will most likely continue and will continue to have deacons in those positions. That's a little different than Mike's because Mike's has a, maybe a more clear end in sight. Um, did we do that because we have a verse that says, thus saith the Lord? No, it's an observation that we've made and it's the way that we've applied it in our body. Is that sufficient? Perfect. Okay.